Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Very excited today for a first-time guest, um, but someone I've been a long-time fan of. We sparred at the margins every now and then on in our various uh, iterations, but uh, one of the smartest guys I know and friendly sparring, friend, always friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember if our guest today has broken our greatest distance. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not the case because Lyman Stone recorded a podcast with us from Hong Kong, but this is close. Brink Lindsay, who's the vice president at the Niskanen Center and the author of a substack on capitalism and other things called The Permanent Problem. And before that, he was a longtime vice president for research at the Cato Institute and a scholar for the Kaufman Foundation. He's also the author of several books that I have found extremely useful in my life, uh, starting with Against the Dead Hand and then Oh, there's the one you do with the captive economy. Captured economy, yes. Captured economy with, with Steve Tellas. And then there's the... What was the affluent one? Yeah, the age of abundance. Age of abundance. That's right. Titles stick to my head less than ideas do. So I apologize for that. But Brink Lindsay, uh, welcome to the remnant. Wonderful to be here. So, but I'm south of Hong Kong, so I may be farther away, south and east. So okay, well, geography is not my yeah, strong suit. Right. Um, I guess that's right. I will have in the comments section moments after this publishes several people giving me the Google map, map coordinates for this. All right. So one incredibly minor question that I've been meaning to ask you for weirdly a couple of years now for context listeners may not know but there was a big dust up about this thing that if my memory is right you can correct me i'm totally open to correction you wrote this big essay about how libertarians need to leave the right and join with progress you know sober-minded progressives about how to do good governance and whatnot and that's sort of i think in some ways has set you on this journey to where you are now but um two things that listeners should know because we're going to refer to it a couple times probably is the essay used the word libertarian, correct? Which I think was, I think I pointed, I argued at the time, deserved special commendation for coming up with a label less euphonious than libertarian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe the ugliest label ever devised. But then the other thing was, and I think didn't they impose that on you with the headline? Yeah, so, no, it was a, yeah, it was a New Republic. I wrote a, I wrote an essay for. The New Republic, this was late 2006. Um, so at that time, uh, people with, uh, of libertarianish persuasion were, uh, were pretty much on the outs uh, with, the, with the Bush administration. Uh, uh, most had been uh, opposed to the Iraq war from the get-go. I was uh, late on that score. Um, but I 
but uh, and then there was you know it was a big spending uh, uh, period for uh, the Republicans back then. Uh, the the one big libertarian uh, initiative, Social Security privatization, uh, just completely belly flopped. Uh, so basically, there was a lot of rumbling at that time that the old, the longtime fusion between uh, between libertarians and and conservatives uh, was coming unglued. And this was also at a time when I think the Fox Newsification of the of the Republican base and then the Republican Party was already underway. Uh, so, um, so I wrote this piece saying, okay, if fusionism with the right is dying, maybe we should be exploring fusionism with the left. Libertarians have always understood themselves as having a foot in both camps. We have things in common uh, with progressives. Uh, we're separated by, you know, uh, issues on, uh, on economic policy. Um, but we're separated by, with, from conservatives on really important things. And we've uh, learned over the years how to sort of manage uh, those differences and work constructively on things we agreed with. So uh, maybe we should be exploring uh, this. And this was written at a time when I was becoming really uncomfortable with my longtime association with the right because of its populist turn. So I was, I, I was interested in, in, in seeing if there was a libertarian kind of home to be made on the center left. Right. So that's the context that I just wanted listeners to have. But the actual question I had for you, it has now become a, an, almost a cliche to say the, the left wants to work in the 1950s and the right wants to live there. And my memory was always that you, that was your coinage. Yes, it is. Okay, so you deserve royalties on that because I hear that all the time from people saying it as if either they invented it or as if this is something everybody says. And I was pretty sure that was yours. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, I think it's probably the best turn of phrase I ever came up with. But I came with it all, up, up, up with it off the cuff at a Brookings event, uh, and then I put it in that uh, libertarian's piece. Okay, so uh, everyone out there, send a dime every time you <laughs> use that phrase. To, to send it to Thailand, so the postage. Is going to sort of negate the whole process. I'll, I'll find a I'll find a worthy uh, charity. Okay, so uh, just 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 do some more scene setting because we're counter programming here in the states tonight is the Republican debate. It's the joy you can imagine it would be. So uh, whenever there's stuff in the news that there's no way we can keep up with on this podcast, we tend to lean heavily into the nerdery. So how do you if you're doing your own rigorous personal inventory? about the libertarian project. How do you think it worked out? And to the extent it did or didn't, why do you think it failed? Oh, it was a complete failure, uh, at least on, on one hand. On the other hand, uh, uh, but, but there's ways in which it has succeeded in a subterranean way over time. Uh, but as an explicit thing, it, 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 it was spectacularly ill-timed. Uh, it was an outreach to the left, right, uh, after the 06 elections where the Democrats had swept both houses of Congress uh, and, and where two years later uh, they were going to have, you know, a huge win for Obama and, and have commanding majorities uh, in both houses. And so that was uh, liberals spend a lot of time worrying about why they lose all the time and, and wondering, you know, if they should reformulate and, and, and you know, seek new uh, ways to spin things, uh, but that wasn't one of those times when they were worried about that. Um, it was also so, on the cusp of the financial crisis, which uh, created cross currents in people's thinking about regulation in the state and all sorts of things. Yeah, correct, and yeah, so that's right. And so the neoliberal Clinton era turn uh, in the Democratic Party was just running out of gas right around that time. 
so it wasn't well-timed. But the fact is, you know, uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley were, you know, have big influences on the Democratic Party uh, and growing and during this time have had, you know, had bigger influences on the uh, on the Democratic Party. Uh, and they're, you know, kind of libertarian, right? They're socially liberal and, and economically free market oriented. You know, something like that kind of that group of people is is a larger constituency on the center left today uh, than it used to be. Uh, but not, not not thanks to me. Yes, it's funny. I never I never thought about it in these terms before. But you know that that Churchill phrase, that Churchill line where he says the Americans and the British are two people separated by a common language. It seems to me that you can make the case that that's the case with libertarians and progressives. The language of progressivism and libertarianism is remarkably similar, right? It's all about not all about, but you know, personal lim- uh, personal uh, liberation, personal autonomy, uh, maybe not property rights, but self-property, prop- self-ownership and all that kind of thing. And I guess the the distinction the problem is is that the libertarian qua libertarian more in the sort of, I don't know what, Hume, Smith tradition and the, the, the left libertarian, to the extent there is such a thing, is more in the Rawls sort of tradition and that what people mean by personal, you know, and Dewey, right? So it's positive liberty versus negative liberty. And that's a very heavy conceptual chasm to cross. Yeah, you have to you have to talk about things in different ways, but but I would say even within sort of you know organized within think tank libertarianism, libertarianism as a, as a mass movement has just gone completely off the maga deep end. I think, uh, um, but Cato I think stresses much more its center left affiliated issues than it used to. Right, it's leaned much more into immigration and criminal justice than it did back in the eighties and nineties, uh, and so I think there has been in that sense, you know more exploration of common topics with the center left, which was what I was talking about in the first place. So again, I think this thing is happening in that way. And so, and then, you know, on, on housing, uh, this was an issue that, uh, the, the knee jerk progressive response on housing was subsidized demand and inhibit supply in any way you can be against developers, be against landlords. That's, that's the correct progressive position until, now, after decades of thinking that way uh, and laws that reflect that kind of thinking, we had this rolling housing affordability crisis in metro areas around the country and especially on the coasts and especially in California. Uh, it's really come out of the center left. Matt Iglesias was a real you know, uh, leader in, in raising this issue of, uh, of zoning and artificial uh, restraints on, on, on housing construction and the price we're paying. In all kinds of ways. I mean, it's, it's a significant not on economic growth because we don't let people live where they're making GDP uh, because we build moats around those cities. Uh, and that's, you know, you can sell that in progressive ease as housing affordability and you can sell it to libertarians as deregulation and because it's both. No, I mean, the, 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 the urban thing is one of my big bugaboos in that, you know, the classic story, you know, which is where a big chunk of my people come from is garment factory workers in you know beginning of the 20th century kind of thing. We get all these tours and classes on the triangle shirtwaist fire and how terrible tenements were. Left out a lot of those stories is the fact that why did poor people want to live <laughs> in those cities in the right. first place, right. right? And that's one of these great stories about the world today is these mega cities where it turns out that poor people want to live in cities because that's where the work is. And 
that's where there's a chance to sort of lift yourself up. And yeah, so like bad fire codes are bad and we should fix those, right? But like the problem that you have in American cities now is they're becoming a lot like European cities is that they're not the ecosystems for personal advancement because they're, it's very difficult to live anywhere near or anywhere near where you actually get to the ladder that pulls you up. The obvious issue is uh, is housing is crazy expensive in places where supply is constrained. Um, but it rolls into a, a real problem for economic mobility because people can't move to a superior opportunity. It, it, it's a real uh, knock on productivity and, and economic growth because of just misallocation of the population. Um, uh, it's uh, driving both racial and uh, uh, class-based segregation, which is really bad for economic mobility over the longer term. So it's just terrible. It's just total poison. The whole issue with NIMBYs, not in my backyard, is a completely natural sentiment. Uh, So we we tend to, YIMBYs tend to demonize NIMBYs as the bad guys, and and I get that. Uh, um, But uh, it's they bear the costs of construction uh, in the, you know, in the short term uh, and they bear the extra traffic costs and so forth. So it's just normal for people to oppose change right in their backyard. So the problem is we accord overwhelmingly disproportionate influence to immediate neighbors in just political decisions about land use. When lots of other people are affected, everybody in the whole municipality is affected by the, the, the availability of housing and the uh, all the people who want to move to that uh, place from far away are affected. Uh, the whole country's economy is affected. So uh, the, the the issue isn't that these people have nasty motives; they have understandable motives. The issue is that they're they're just way too amplified in the process. Yeah, and in fairness to some of them, I mean, there are a lot. There are many rooms in the mansion of NIMBYism, right? And so there are good there are better forms of nimbyism or there are more defensible forms of nimbyism than other forms, right? Obviously, you don't want black people in the neighborhood. That's a really bad form of nimbyism. But if 20% of the value of your home is tied up with your school district and, um, and so you have problems with, say, you know, educational choice stuff or, you know, you don't want, um, like this was a big issue for me growing up in the 70s and 80s in New York was, you know, the, the single room occupancy basically drug addict hotels that they were putting up around the neighborhood. Like I get the nimbyism there a lot more than I would for some other things. And um, so it's an argument, right? I mean, that's the, that's the issue is you have to argue it out. No, and, but, but, you know, especially galling is, uh, and you see this a lot in California is, you know, the progressive signage in the yard uh, in this house, we welcome people from everywhere and of every persuasion, you know, Provided you can shell out five million to move to our neighborhood, right? Right. In this house, we believe in science unless it lowers our property values. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over five million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. 
So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so let's get on to the meteor. Uh, not meteor. The, 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 the more recent uh, stuff. You've been writing a bit lately about um, the dangers of creeping tyranny and, and centralization in and what to look out for. So why don't you just give me a tour de horizon of, uh, that's as French as I get on this podcast, <laughs> um, of how you see the, the current crisis. Yeah, so I started this substack called The Permanent Problem uh, just about a year ago. Um, and it's, it's basically like a serial book up to now uh, because it's pursuing an argument. And it really started as a, as a book idea uh, that, that I wasn't convinced enough about the thesis to really want to try to write it. Uh, to, if you, if you write a book, you gotta, you know, you gotta believe in the, in the argument and you, and you gotta sell it, right. Um, you gotta fortify it and you gotta make it bulletproof and you gotta shove it down your, your reader's throats with its unassailable persuasive logic. But I didn't feel that way about, uh, I, I felt that way kind of about the diagnosis of what's going wrong, but about how to move from here, I felt much more tentative. And so I, I thought, the sort of exploratory format of and you know a series of essays was much better suited to my state of state of mind. So and everybody's on Substack now anyway. So I thought I would play. So it's been very fun. Um, and I called it the permanent problem, uh, which is a line from a, an essay by John Maynard Keynes, published in 1930, called "Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren," uh, which, right in the depths of the Great Depression, he said, "Folks, this is a temporary bump in the road, barring you know horrendous global wars and catastrophes unremitting." And by the, you know, in basically a century's time, uh, we're going to be, he said, you know, a, a significant multiple uh, of, of where we are today in per capita income. Uh, and at that point, uh, we can basically say that the, the economic problem, the problem of, of objective material scarcity, of not having enough food, shelter and clothing for everybody is going to be solved. Said, and, and at that point, mankind's permanent problem, uh, how to live wisely and agreeably and well uh, with the affluence that, as he put it, science and compound interest had delivered to you. That's, that's, the, that's, uh, that's the next chapter. And he predicted that it would be uh, a bumpy ride, uh, that uh, a transformation this fundamental uh, was, uh, was going to cause a lot of tumult. Um, and, you know, I had, uh, but then he also predicted that by now, uh, we'd be working 15 to 20 hours a week uh, because we would have basically made significant progress towards moving past economic concerns in his, in his very sort of bohemian kind of way. Um, so that, that was all wrong. Uh, but the idea that, that material abundance didn't solve all problems, it just brought new problems into view. That was one that I knew about already because I wrote a book about it, The Age of Abundance, uh, which was about looking at post-war American history through the prism of, of the effect of mass affluence on culture and politics. 
And I, I told that, okay, we've had this humongous change in the human condition uh, in the 1950s, the baby boom generations, the first generation of human beings ever raised that could take their basic material needs for granted. Um, and uh, so that's something new under the sun. And so if you have that big a change in social reality, you're likely to have big adaptations in culture and politics following suit. And 1964, the year the first baby boomers turned 18, you had, you had the Berkeley, first Berkeley riots. Uh, and then, you know, there followed the 60s and 70s and all the cultural mayhem uh, and upheaval that followed. Uh, so uh, when I uh, uh, wrote The Age of Abundance, which I wrote in the early O's, and, but really kind of conceived in the late 90s, uh, I, had, I saw this storm and drung created by mass affluence as being in the past, something that had happened in the 60s and 70s, and that now by the 90s and O's, we were we had achieved a kind of liberal t- libertarianish kind of synthesis that that uh, the left had gone, you know, had made war on capitalism uh, and you know tried uh, you know pursued communes and all that and tried to have radical alternatives to the bourgeois nuclear family and all of that just completely imploded in the 60s. Uh, but uh, and so we went back to actually a, a more market oriented form of capitalism than we had before. Uh, while at the same time, uh, everybody got a lot more socially liberal uh, on issues of race and sex and uh, and sexual roles, uh, sexual orientation. Uh, I, I was telling a happy story. But then the 21st century happened. Uh, and so now it's it's basically 20 years since I since I started writing Age of Abundance. Uh, and I had this book idea. Basically, the working title is The Age of Abundance. What the hell happened? Looking back in the narrative of that book, it explained there was a dark side and there that there were real problems and 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 wrong turns that were unleashed in the sixties and seventies um, and subsequently. But I was optimistic. I thought you know that those were those were outweighed by the by the positive strides that had been made and the outlook looked bright. And so I I was I believed in progress. I believed until. Uh, summer of 2016, uh, that the path of least resistance for the world was to become freer and uh, richer and happier and better governed. Uh, You know, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, But, you know, we had a succession of uh, debacles and catastrophes in the 21st century from 9-11 to Iraq to Katrina to the financial crisis to the Roman church, you know, Roman Catholic church scandal, just one set of elites after another, just disgracing themselves. and, uh, And then this crazy populist turn uh, and the unhinging of our politics and the elevation of someone just extravagantly unfit for high office uh, first to a major party nomination. That's when I realized that something was much deeper wrong with the world than I had previously thought. And then for him to actually win and then for everything that followed. So ever since all that happened, I started looking back at, you know, what did I get wrong? Why, why had I thought things were going to work out better and why have they taken this nasty turn? And, uh, and what do we do about it? And so uh, I've started this blog, uh, Substack, The Permanent Problem, uh, where I dive into, you know, when I'm at Niskanen, uh, we pursue relatively bold but still incremental reforms uh, that are in the politically possible here and now. We consciously, self-consciously strive to fashion policy ideas that draw on ideas from both the left and the right so they can be sold to progressives on progressive terms and to conservatives on conservative terms. Um, That's our MO. But in dealing with these issues and dealing with issues like uh, regulatory capture and or issues of 
slowing economic dynamism. I, I saw that there were big, much deeper forces that I couldn't really, that weren't approachable in talking about in, you know, day to day policy discussion. So I wanted to dive deeper and I've been doing that on this substack. As far as sort of recently, I've been talking about the the centralization of and rationalization of social existence that's basically happened since uh, industrialization, that the, the scale of human activity became superhuman, right? We, we started building these uh, huge factories that uh, produce things at superhuman speeds. And we had huge divisions of labor with strangers who didn't know each other, only bound by abstract rules and norms. And so we, we built this huge gazelle shaft on top of the old organic face-to-face combined shaft. And that's, that's an old story, right? But it's taking a, it takes a continually evolving turn. Uh, one of the things that grew out of having this large-scale capitalism was you needed a large-scale managerial class to run all these complex economic activities and coordinate between them. And that creates a demand for a whole lot of college-educated people. So the whole educational profile of, of the country changes and the cognitive and cognitive cultural profile of the country changes as it moves into information economy, knowledge work, and being a white-collar existence as opposed to a a rural or blue collar existence. And this managerial class is sort of has grown to be the dominant class in our society. And it's, it sees everything as a management problem. Uh, and it wants to t- take care of all of us and see everything as a problem to be optimized. And so as a result, I think by having outsourced so many of our responsibilities, either to the market or to the state, we have lost that kind of down-in-the-trenches, small-scale, face-to-face, community-organizing, problem-solving that used to be just completely second nature to Americans. So I brought all this up in the context of I was right. There's a uh, I did a trio of essays on what we can learn from the kind of post-liberal right, what we can learn from the socialist left, and then what we can learn from my old libertarian roots. We already have this world where we're all super hyper-specialized and know how to do one thing that we get our market income from. Uh, and don't know how to do too many other things. What, 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 how does this lead to tyranny? So we have this kind of growing administrative state, some of which is parastatal and located in, you know, human HR departments and big companies. I like that. I like the term parastatal. I, I, I'm going to be using that a lot. So, but our, our lives are increasingly managed. More and more of us work for big organizations and we live according to the logic of big organizations in a way that never happened before. And I, I think that has snuffed out a lot of our previous American habits of, of initiative and, and self-sufficiency. But looking beyond this kind of cultural draining of initiative out of the populace and centralizing it all into one class, one elite class, you know, democracy under a lot of stress right now. I, I, I continue to bet on democracy as the superior option, but not always as the winning option. So there's a real risk just looking at humanity as a whole. Uh, we're in a global democratic recession. And so we have to acknowledge that autocracy is is an ongoing problem uh, and a growing problem at present. Yeah, beyond that, though, just looking farther ahead, we've got a world where I think the relative contributions of ordinary workers to the total economic pie is shrinking. Uh, that's been going on ever since uh, the computer technology got going uh, and this sort of skill-biased technological change, they call it. That's the dry term for it. But basically, 
Once upon a time, technological progress, industrial might, and therefore American national security depended upon huge inputs of brawn and clerical labor. Uh, And so when those folks banded together and and into unions, they had enormous power because everything was dependent upon them. If they went on strike, it it could be a national security crisis if the steel industry went on strike, right? There's nothing like that anymore. Uh, So technological progress has freed itself from dependence on mass inputs of unskilled labor in rich countries through globalization, but mostly through automation. And so the leverage of ordinary people in economic life is less. Uh, The percentage of the overall pie they take is less. There is growing pressure to supplement market income with with non-market sources of income, with government support. I prefer wage subsidies. I prefer subsidizing work to universal basic income. But I see in the cards that my guess is that over time, people are going to become more dependent on government for their uh, income than less. At the same at the same time, we have government perfecting ever more diabolical ways to surveil us, uh, and now AI enabled to you know to to read your emotions and, and 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 but to know all your habits from your phone usage and so forth. So, and China is already starting to put this into effect in in really Orwellian ways. But again, with parastatal organizations, you can imagine this kind of move towards uh, towards you know a social credit system uh, where. Uh, right think is uh, encouraged and wrong think is minutely observed and punished. So I, I, I worry about our growing dependence on government and government's growing ability to, to be a, an effective pan, panopticon. You put those, things two to, put two, those two things together, and I, I worry about the prospects of individual liberty over the next hundred years. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. It's kind of a movable feast. So let me, let me just do this Jeopardy style of making a couple of statements in the form of a question, and then you can pick them up wherever you like. It seems to me that on the on the mass affluence thing, the problem with the the Keynesian analysis about mass affluence is that because human beings by nature, when they're born into societies, they take the existing society as the baseline and they take it for granted and they feel entitled to it. And so trying to convince people you don't understand how rich you are <laughs> is very difficult to do, right? And, and I think because of his particular ideology. He was completely blind to the possibility that people could find self-actualization on the job. And a lot of people have. So that's, you know, working hours have gone up, you know, among the top 10% 10 of workers. A lot of that is because those jobs are incredibly demanding, but also incredibly exciting, fulfilling, challenging. And, you know, you're you're a master of the universe. So and and that and he did not he he could not have imagined that kind of motivation. He didn't imagine that women were going to want to get out of the house and start working. Right. And there's also but there's also the side point that when you see the other mediating institutions of society, the other you know little platoons, whatever label we want to put on it, that provide people meaning and stuff, as those atrophy, the significance and importance of people's work is only going to increase because it's the institution that they draw the most are going to be drawing the most meaning from. Right. I've been meaning to write about this for a long time about how. The real source of fulfillment is multiple forms of identity, not singular identity. And the only way you have multiple forms of identity is being parts of multiple institutions. Um, I wish I'd practiced more of what I preach on this, but I think it's the correct observation regardless. So like I have this theory, which I've tested a couple of times. I want to throw by you is that one of the reasons why we get culture wars as much as we do, you know, you thought they were going to abate in the mid aughts and they have not. I'm going to, I'm here to inform you. They have not. Um, <laughs> is that um, 
in an age of where mass aff, uh, in an age of mass affluence, and I, and I do agree with you about the mass affluence part. By any objective measure, right? Our poor people are very rich compared to poor people in any other era, right? It's not a politically useful thing to tell poor people because poor poverty is subjective, not objective in in people's brains. But right now, poor people are fatter than rich people, and that's it. Didn't used to be that way, right? But that said. I've really become sort of obsessed with with Fred Hirsch's concept of the positional good, which is a little different than the Veblen good, but very similar also. Insofar as status, cultural esteem is a positional good. There can only be one kid in high school who's the best basketball player, right? And there can be only one kid who's the most popular. Um, similar in society, there can only be one set of elites, really. I mean, be multiple, but they're going to be related, who are considered the elites that define what the priorities of society should be. And other elites are very, very resentful of that. Right. And there's, you know, there's one best part of town. There's one, you know, coolest restaurant. There's one hottest vacation spot. There's always that kind of scarcity. And as Fred Hirsch wrote back in the 70s, I guess, it's bulking ever larger in in economic decision-making is pursuit of positional goods as as the as the basic goods just get cheaper and cheaper. Right. And that's why you said people can't live. You said something along the lines of the American dream is gone because people cannot, people can live the middle class lifestyle, but it won't feel like a middle class lifestyle anymore. Right. Right. And I think that that, that phenomenon drives an enormous amount of the culture war stuff because the shibboleths that come with a culture war, you know, knowing whether it's left-wing ones about woke this and, and pronoun that, or right-wing ones about country music or whatever, um, those are essentially positional goods in effect, right? I mean, the, this idea of, uh, someone wrote this first, but that woke language, which I'm just using conventionally, I'm not trying to make an editorial point here, is kind of a Veblen good, right? It's like you, it signals to people that your parents were rich enough to drench you in an educational meritocratic environment, right? Yes, it's it's insider jar it's insider jargon to to show your right and little else, you know. And um, you know, and the best example of this has always been Latinx, which is, takes the language of inclusivity, but actually pisses off Latinos more than any other group, right? Um, and it's that kind of signaling, and so that's why I think the culture war stuff you're going to get more culture war from affluence rather than left less precisely because everything else is so cheap and culture wars are a way to buy meaning sort of off the shelf. And that's a huge problem. And also, uh, and, and I wrote about this in the age of abundance and, and it's taken a darker turn. Uh, the, the, the main axis of political conflict has changed in the age of abundance from haves versus have nots to cultural issues. Uh, as I put it, belongs versus belong nots. That's so. In the '60s, the new left uh, was uh, at that point. It was the '60s, right? We just we were. The, it was the last decade of this amazing boom, and everyone thought it was going to go on forever. And they thought the economic problem had been solved, and the money just grew on trees, and that the only economic problem was pockets of poverty in Appalachian inner cities, and the working class were, you know well-heeled, two cars uh, in the garage, a bunch of, you know, retrograde racists. They're not our guys. So instead, uh, the egalitarian impulses of the left looked for people who, instead of 
people who were without, because that wasn't a pressing problem anymore, people who were culturally without, people who were excluded from the cultural mainstream and, and in some way, uh, you know, their, their identities were not given full expression and were oppressed. So obviously civil rights kicked the whole thing off and, and gave the, the whole thing its, its vocabulary. But then, uh, you know, the women, you know, the uh, feminism uh, following suit and gay rights, and et cetera. And then, you know, migrant workers, anybody, prisoners' rights, anybody who was marginalized became the object of left-of-center concern. And that then made it pretty much impossible to uh, have effective have versus have-not politics anymore because the working class was now split. Uh, it was split between uh, the constituencies of the progressive Democratic Party and the white working class, which has now gravitated overwhelmingly to the Republicans. So having a having politics about what most people agree on, uh, which is we need more stuff, that politics has been precluded by the reorganization of political conflict along cultural lines and along demographic lines where you can't compromise. Uh, you can't make your identity go away. Uh, where it's uh, it's very easy for this kind of politics to get toxic, and that's what's happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that the I've been reading too much Rene Girard, and it gets into my head for a little while, and then it spills out of my ears. But um, I think the if you're going to find an intellectual wrong turn, and I'm I'm I want to ask you about intellectual history stuff in a second because I've changed my views on intellectual history more than almost any other thing. But um, as an intellectual, emotional, cultural product. I think the real wrong turn was not to sound too Nietzschean here, but was in the glorification of victimization. It's a cultural thing. It's not just the left wing thing. A lot of right wingers love to talk about the left is just obsessed with victimization. There are very few people in my email and Twitter threads more obsessed with victimization than right wingers and about their own victimization. It's completely jumped over to the right now. Yeah. I mean, and, and the blood brain barrier, I think it, it's in the water supply in America in a lot of ways. Right. It manifests itself in different ways. And, you know, and it's I mean, hardcore, you know, just cartoon villain segregationists in the 50s. They saw themselves as victims. So, right. It, right. It's not I mean, it's an old story. I agree. But it's 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 become institutionalized in a way. And so you have this this idea that somehow there's great status that comes from being a victim. And so then you need the state and the or the elites of the the people control the commanding heights of the culture to recognize your victim status as, and that's the positional good now. And that's what people want to argue about is are, are small town white guys, the, the real victims out there or are, you know, or black people or are gays or are transgender people. And, and everyone's arguing about in this attention economy run politics, who deserves our nationalized sympathy you know, our, our, our strategic sympathy reserve, who should we ta untap it for? And that's, I think, the problem. Yeah, it's just an ongoing, never-ending, 24-7 relative status pissing contest. Who's, who's up, who's down? And, and you can't get up without putting the other person down. So it's, a, it's an inherently zero-sum politics. So it's just awful. Uh, and it's tearing, you know, American democracy apart. Yeah, and I, and I don't, the only way to get out of it I can see are exogenous events that I do not welcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could, I might've thought that a killer pandemic would have made us all uh, band together, but it sure didn't. No, I mean, and the pandemic, it, it exacerbated all of these trends where everybody across the spectrum, whatever, whatever 
their attitude on masks was it didn't mean it. They all felt had license to feel like they were the victim for their position on on masks or vaccines. And um, and the conversation about it was just too stupid to revisit. But um, on intellectual history. So when I was listening to you sort of lay out your evolution or you're thinking about this on your Substack, um, I'm sure you wouldn't disagree. I heard from every third sentence, Joseph Schumpeter crying out, right? And by extension, uh, James Burnham. And the whole managerial class argument, the new class argument, uh, you know, my, my roots go intellectually to the first wave neoconservatives who were, you know, contrary to popular yeah, I've, perception. I've, 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 I was, I've been going back and reading a lot of old public interest and commentary articles when I was reading about this. And so I'm somewhat obsessed with different theories of the new class, but they all basically derive by one step or another out of Schumpeter. I'm just wondering, like, if, so, if you are, you're talking to some college students and they ask you, you know, what is the managerial class and what is its role in contemporary society? How do you explain it? I'm going someplace with this, but you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easy to go overboard with focusing on the PMC, professional managerial class, as if it is this completely cohesive monolithic entity. The deep state kind of version of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, And it's, you know, it, it, it contains very heterogeneous that our our top 20 25% of people who are in managerial and professional jobs are you know are extremely heterogeneous they're all they hate each other <laughs> they they're republicans and democrats it's it's not one thing but they do have some common features and those and those common features absolutely rub the rest of america the wrong way what is has really sharpened polarization is is that cultural and economic power have become concentrated in one group of people? So once upon a time, you had yeah, you had the Hollywood left, right? And and but but then you had you know the, the business class and the you know the big Fortune five hundred CEOs who were scattered in corporate headquarters all over America, and they're you know just corn fed American guys. They're 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 an elite, but they are completely different, right? Um, whereas now the American economic elite is much more tech. And you know, and 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 not sort of stolid Midwestern, uh, but coastal and highly educated and very socially liberal. And so, economic power and cultural power are now in the same demographic. Uh, and so, in you know, heartland America, uh, outside of those uh, you know the nerve centers of the information economy, uh, it's rough. Uh, and where. You know, the majority of counties are losing population, um, and and that gives off the feel of, you know, that your way of life is dying. To be, you know, busybodied by a fairly supercilious elite that, that, you know, steps on rakes fairly often as well, generates real resentment. Um, And that resentment then is, uh, makes those folks vulnerable for terrible demagogues who, instead of channeling their resentment towards constructive ends, channel it towards political theater and their own political, you know, aggrandizement. Uh, and so there we're stuck with, with a culture war that I think has legitimate grievances in, in, the, in the tensions between a, 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 
an elite that could be a lot be- that could be doing a lot better uh, and with some very bad habits and the rest of the country, but the rest of the country's political expression uh, is uh, is deeply dysfunctional. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, all right. So, on, on this intellectual history stuff, because you do... I learned a lot of intellectual history stuff from you. Um, like, I, for example, I always give you credit. Like, it was in Against the Dead Hand, the where I first learned about looking backward, the Edward Bellamy stuff. And I've, I've pulled on that string a lot, but um, I still love intellectual history. I still think ideas matter a great deal. You know, my friend George Will likes to say that small, committed, ideological minorities move the world. And I, there's a certain sense to which I agree with that. Um, I wouldn't call this podcast the remnant if, if it, I didn't have some belief in this. At the same time, I've come to think of the way people do intellectual history, including myself at times in the past, is fundamentally flawed in the sense that we like to look, you know, people who like intellectual history, um, we like to connect dots. And so Rousseau said this, and then these things happened in the French Revolution, and they all credited Rousseau. And so therefore, Rousseau is the author of these things. Right. And um, James Burnham or, or Joseph Schumpeter said these things about the managerial class or the new class, or whatever, and so therefore these things are in some way epiphenomena of their writing or their thought, when in reality, they're just noticing things. Correct. And articulating, the, yeah, and articulating them better than anybody else has. That's right. Or, or in the case of Rousseau, Rousseau is offering arguments that people need a trademark for. Right. It's sort of like I, I go back and I look at Herbert Crowley, who I think was wrong about a great many things. Very smart. though. Or you look at um, an even better example. The example I always use is the, you ever read Charles Reich's Greeting of America? Yeah, yeah. Arguably one of the worst written books <laughs> ever. Right. But You're a law professor. But you but people needed some sort of like Mao's little red book. They need something to wave to say, see, this proves my stuff is right. My views are right. My movement is the thing. This is the thing that time has come. And so it turns out that a lot of intellectual history are lagging indicators that we use as sort of die markers for these things. And we give them more credit than they deserve. Um, how do you look at it? Like the cause, I'm not saying it's all causality one way or the other. It depends on the specific circumstances. That's what we call it history. Yeah, but yeah, like, how do you look at it? Yeah. In my youth, I was 
much more interested in intellectual history than any other kind and and thought those were the levers that moved the world and and I believe they are in a sense right but but in a much subtler sense than idea causes world event there's a wave there's something happening in society this intellectual reflects it's going on in his head too he can give voice to it then other people around him, but the other people around him are actually doing the stuff to put that wave into effect. And they're influenced by his articulation of it. And it clarifies what was implicit and latent in what they were doing anyway. So there's a back and forth, but it, it always starts with, I think what's going on in the world and, and uh, intellectual tuning into it. Uh, so I just look at intellectual history of, of the world since uh, the 1930s. So, there's just these big honking brute facts that happened. The Great Depression and World War II happened. The Great Depression dramatically lowered people's opinions of the efficacy of markets. And victory in World War II dramatically raised people's uh, thinking about the efficacy of government. Uh, and we had a politics that reflected that for a good long time until it ran out of gas in Vietnam and Watergate here in, in other similar scandals elsewhere, and then in stagflation. We had the brute fact, the brute fact of, of stagflation, which was totally unanticipated by the Keynesian fine-tuners, and a, kind of a, a, a social fears of social collapse with crime waves and all the rest. The brute facts of social upheaval and economic underperformance gave rise to this neoliberal turn, as we're saying, putting it as a... I, I think neoliberal is okay as an historical adjective, neoliberalism, I don't know what that means, but the neoliberal era of 1978 to 2008, that makes sense to me. Anyway, and then, but then you have the financial crisis comes along uh, and voila, you get populism all over the place. So mixed with a big slowdown in economic growth and a skew in in economic growth. So uh, the bottom half gets less of it than they used to, meaning that it took till 2017 uh, for median income to reach 2000 levels again. So we went almost 20 years of complete stagnation in the middle of the country. And that, that those kind of brute facts just changed the climate of ideas. So ideas back in the nineties, when the economy is humming and communism had just collapsed, the, at that time we were completely, it was completely clear from the brute facts that capitalism was working. And it didn't matter how articulate or brilliant a socialist scribbler was in the 90s, they were not going to get any traction. Their stuff was just going to be totally marginal. And if they pursued that line, they were going to be a nobody because they weren't in step with what was happening at the time. That guy, 20 years later, after the financial crisis, he starts Jacobin. You get the DSA. You get AOC. You get you get a real political reaction. And you get an intellectual articulation of it. But it's these big honking events that I, I see as as more effective causal levers than, than anybody's writing, but, but the writing's, writing's playing a role. Yeah. So I, I agree. Who was the British prime minister who says when he was asked, what are you worried about? He says events, dear boy events, right? I can't remember who it is. I agree with you about the importance of events. It's funny. One of the things, you know, I, I, for years I hated generational stereotyping and I still kind of do, but I I've given it a new, I have newfound respect for it because Jean Twangy, who does a lot of this stuff, she she reconciled for me the thing that um, makes it uh, complementary, spelt the correct way, with 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 my views about technology driving culture, which is she says that generational differences have very little to do with events. 
like the event theory of generational differences is generally wrong. It's changes in technology, right? And so some, some events like World War II brought about many changes in technology, right? You know, um, and, um, but I look back at, you know, the last 40 years and it seems to me that of the problems that you and I are talking about, you know, the breakdown in institutions, the, 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 the sort of rise of monocultural imposition of capitalism and all of these sorts of things, this is, has less to do with the actual intellectual constructs around it and more to do with the physical products these things produce. You know, my, my colleague Yuval Levin, you know, points out all the time that part of the problem with the decline of institutions is that we forget that institutions, we talk about how we miss institutions as these places to find meaning and purpose, but no one starts an institution to say, hey, we need to create some meaning and purpose. Right. What they, they start an institution to say, hey, we need to divert this river. Yes. Or we need to yes. build this barn. Right. Or right. we need to help the poor people in our community. Right. There's, there's goals to it. Technology combined with the managerial class that turns everything into a professional project rather than a civic project or a volunteer, voluntary project. That's technological change that deprives people of avenues to find meaning and purpose working with other human beings. And I think that that, those places, those kinds of nooks and crannies of civil society are the places where people find meaning and belonging and the things that make them not look to Washington or to their screens to fight about meaning and belonging. And um, I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you create meaningful institutions that provide real value that can't be done by technology or by union workers paid by the government. But that's sort of what society needs most. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's where the kind of semi-radical prescriptions I'm coming up with on the Substack, sort of woolliest part of my current thinking, is, is, is on this subject. And I, I, I believe we, we very much, for a whole bunch of different reasons, need to demassify society and somehow or another reinvigorate smaller scale local from from families to to neighborhoods to smaller to smaller communities within metropolitan areas and and these and, and we need to give I, I talk about a, a, an economic independence movement a movement to uh, instead of giving everybody a check come up with some kind of uh, of successor to the uh, to the homestead act where you uh, you encourage people to provide for themselves at a community level, and you encourage projects for more community self-reliance. However, this could take shape, and I'm not convinced that my ideas for how it might take shape are the are, are the best ones, or, or and I'm certainly not convinced they're the ones that are going to happen. But I, I think that right now we see, especially outside the elite, society is just sort of literally disintegrating. People's commitments to all the ins the institutions that give life meaning, work commitment is degrading. Uh, and the less college educated men, commitments to family is degrading. Obviously, uh, community activities are down. Church going is down. Everything that glues people together uh, and gives them meaning in their lives, other than successful careers, is falling apart. Um, and so we have to figure out some way give people. At, at the local level, actual practical functions that, that their cooperation accomplishes. 
It's that actually solving real problems, not searching for meaning, but finding meaning in solving problems together. Uh, that uh, that that's the that's the magic ticket. How I've got ideas on the blog about uh, how that might take shape. I continue to explore those, but but that that direction to to figure out how to re-knit society from the ground up, and especially focusing on the folks who need it, uh, folks outside the uh, outside the elite. That that's where I think the uh, you know, some of our biggest challenges lie. All right. I know, uh, it's late for you in Thailand. Um, it's, uh, only 10 AM here. What time is it there? <laughs> 9 PM. Oh, okay. It's not that late. All right. Yeah, sorry. Big picture. Just close it out. Give you, uh, we are not opposed to what they, 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 they produce regularly at the commentary podcast, um, which is crushing morosity. Um, but it's not a feature of this podcast the way it is over there. All said and done, are you hopeful? Are I try not to use the word optimistic. Uh, Yuval Levin says I'm not supposed to use optimistic because it 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 denies me of agency and participation in making things better. But uh, are you bullish on the future in general, or are you are you living in Thailand because uh, <laughs> I'm r- running away? No, because you're running away. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, I think optimistic or pessimistic, those are empirical assessments. Hopeful is a moral commitment. Uh, and so I, I make the moral commitment to be hopeful. But I, I've been a lot more optimistic uh, about the next 20 years when I was younger than I am right now. So I, I, I think it's it's uh, we really want to come down to a net, posi- net position or it just feels like a real need to be either optimistic or pessimistic. But it's it's quite clear to me that things are simultaneously getting a lot better and a lot worse at the same time. Depending on where you direct your vision, you can see a deepening you know, cause of despair and, and an alarm, or you can see amazing things that are happening um, and possibilities for various kinds of deus ex machina that can solve a lot of these uh, vexing problems. So I, I'm hopeful, committed to you know, doing my bit to uh, try to make the optimists right, uh, and uh, very curious about how it all turns out. All right. With that, uh, Brink Lindsay, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, we'll put links to the Substack and all that in the uh, in the show notes. And um, thank you for coming on. It was great fun. Nice talking to you. Okay, so uh, uh, Brink has left the uh, studio, and um, it was good to catch up with him. Uh, do check out his Substack if you get a chance. We'll put it a link into it in the show notes. Obviously, we see eye to eye on a bunch of things, which is kind of funny, given how I really did go hammer and tongs against liberal tarianism back in the day, in part because of that stuff I was hinting at with the difference between positive liberty and negative liberty or Rawlsian sort of libertarianism, which is or Deweyan libertarianism, which is which is really not libertarianism as people understand it, um, because it envisions a very strong role for the state to sort of liberate people and manage their lives and help them fulfill themselves and find personal and social justice. And the people who are actually attracted to libertarianism, as we generally understand it, just stop short of that stuff as a first principle. But I can talk about more of that on the ruminant or elsewhere. Um, or I can talk about it on an AMA. Uh, we are starting to kick the tires more and more on the skiff which is the for subscribers to the dispatch only podcast feed 
Um, we'll be coming out with a video explaining what, uh, how you, if you're a paid member, how you can subscribe to it very easily. Um, we already have some stuff on there. So, um, you know, we, we've been putting stuff on there for a while. So some people have already probably been trained up on how to do it. Um, but we're going to make it easy for everybody. And, um, I think the plan is that we're going to start doing probably once every month and ask me anything that will only be appear in the skiff. Uh, we'll get you, um, a email address that's easy to use for that. We'll probably set it up today, but I just don't want to say, go, you know, send your email to, um, the remnant at the dispatch.com, although that's probably going to be the email address, uh, because we don't have it set up yet, but we will. Um, in the meantime, you can, you can annoy the hell out of Guy and just send stuff to guy.denton at AEI.org, or you can send it to the, uh, at Jonah Remnant Twitter account, or you can put in the comments and, and Guy will just have to put on his overalls and wait in there and, and collect them. But we're going to try to do like an AMA, like, either at the end of every month or the beginning of every month or something like that so that I, it's planable for me, schedule-wise, planable for you, listener-wise, and adds sort of more value and content to the, the members-only feed, which we're calling this GIF, which is not a reference to self-contained compartmental information, whatever those things are supposed to be called, um, and more reference to the launch of the dispatch where we called ourselves a little pirate GIF and asked people to jump on board. And so if you jump on board, you get to listen to this gift. See, there's, it's, it's wordplay. Other than that, um, I do have a lot of thoughts on the stuff that uh, we were talking about. And, um, but I will save those. Um, obviously, on the Dispatch Podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, the debate, which is, again, tonight. Um, should be interesting. Whether it's relevant is another matter. And um, as Chris Starrell was saying last night on Dispatch Live, which you'll be able to listen to in this gift, so far, you know, the, the ratings for the first one suggest that lots of Republicans are still interested in kicking the tires on other candidates. If the ratings plummet on the second one, uh, maybe that will suggest that they've made up, they've reconciled themselves to voting for Donald Trump in the primaries. Um, so we'll see. That may not be the only factor involved, but we'll see. I guess that's it. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.